The Anzus Quarrel, which entitled in my book Friendly Fire, the kind of damage that friends can do to one another in confusion. General de Gaulle said alliances are like flowers and pretty girls. They last while they last. In 1984, the ANZUS Alliance, linking New Zealand with the United States and Australia, was 33 years old, uh, a time perilous perhaps for pretty girls. It proved also to be perilous for New Zealand's membership of the Alliance. And that year, the country elected a Labour government led by David Longy, which was pledged to renegotiate the Alliance and to exclude nuclear-armed and nuclear-powered warships. As often with election manifestos, nobody could be sure quite what this meant in practice. The people had spoken, but the country had to wait for Mr Longy to tell them exactly what they had said. As so often, that large and ambiguous figure was ambivalent. He had stood aside from formulating the anti-nuclear stance in the party, and over the previous year, he had several times assured the Americans and others that he intended to change it. He asked Bob Hawke, Prime Minister in Australia, what he had done when elected the previous year. And he claimed that Hawke had said to him, quote, when we were in opposition, I played along. But once he won the election, I kicked the bastards in the crutch. And that's what I'm going to do, Longy told the Chief of Defence Staff, Ewan Jamison, when he called on him as leader of the opposition. Whatever David Longy said in his year as opposition leader, there was a formidable problem facing him in government. He had been elected by a large majority on a platform that specifically excluded even the possibility of nuclear weapons in New Zealand's harbours. No ifs, no buts, no weapons. And there was more excitement in the Labour Party over this issue than over the economy or any other issue. On the other hand, it raised difficult issues for countries like the United States and Britain, whose warships regularly carried nuclear weapons on long cruises. Both rigidly adhered to a policy of neither confirming nor denying the presence of any nuclear weapons on board. The main purpose of neither confirm nor deny was to conceal not so much the presence of nuclear weapons as their absence. They were expensive to carry, required special space, crew, cumbersome control systems, and captains preferred not to carry them, if at all possible. A policy of not commenting meant that in many cases the weapons could be left at home, but nobody would know this for certain. So there was a dismayingly wide gap between insisting that no nuclear weapons could be allowed in New Zealand and the refusal of friendly navies to disclose what they might have on board. But bridging gaps is what the art of diplomacy is supposed to be about, and the first signs were not discouraging. The American Secretary of State, George Shultz, was in Wellington just after the election, attending a surreal meeting of the ANZUS Council 
held by the dying Muldoon government. He was determined, he said, not to make an enemy of New Zealand. Conferring with his group in the James Cook Hotel, he ruled out any trade retaliation, saying that when he joined the Marines, he'd been told never to point a rifle at anybody unless he intended to pull the trigger. Throughout all the subsequent turns of the quarrel, he and the administration of which he was a part held firmly to the position that this was an alliance dispute, not a trade one. In the course of this visit to Wellington, he had a first meeting with Longy, who was still Prime Minister-elect. Given the subsequent arguments and recriminations over what was said at this meeting, it would have been helpful if someone had kept a record, but so far at least, it has not been possible to find one, and I've talked to all three of the surviving participants of the four. The Americans went away with the impression that given six months, Longy would work on his party and overcome the problem with ship visits. The New Zealand side say that no undertaking was given, just that the new Prime Minister would do his best. Longy's own summary to his deputy, Geoffrey Palmer, is probably as accurate as any. Quote, US expecting the New Zealand government to find a way through and that we would try, unquote. This message, though, came wrapped in a manner which all those who worked with David Longy became very familiar. When he was uneasy, the reassurances and jokes tumbled out, the sub-clauses billowed like spinnakers, and the listeners were submerged in a rush of friendliness and charm. There was a vague assumption in the country at large that Longy would do what the Australians had done. Bob Hawke had come into office pledged to review the ANZUS Treaty and had decided to stay with it. The radical left of the New Zealand Labour Party, always prone to believe that leaders sold out when they came to power, knew their leader and was deeply suspicious of what he might do. They were, said the American Embassy here, watching him like a hawk with an E. <coughs> However, the first person to dismiss the possibility that Longy would do a hawk was Bob Hawke himself. They met as Prime Ministers for the first time at Port Moresby in August of 1984. Politicians are accustomed to make snap judgments and Hawke took an instant dislike. He interrupted Longy's account of the anti-nuclear policy to say, quote, David, you don't seem really convinced by what you're saying. Longy agreed, saying that when he came to power, an understanding had been reached with the left on nuclear weapons and ship visits in return for a free hand on economic reform, and so his hands were tied. Hawke said, I thought... Who is this fucking fellow? And was so shocked when Longy was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize that he thought of writing to complain, presumably in less Australian language. With the Bob Hawke solution not possible, the Prime Minister's advisers had to think of something else. 
Given the intransigent position of the Labour Party, the only possibility seemed to be to arrange a visit by a patently non-nuclear warship. If that could be managed, the issue of other and more difficult visits could be laid to rest for at least two or more years, while tempers cooled and another approach might be more practicable. An ANZUS naval exercise was scheduled in the Tasman Sea in March 1985, and it would look obvious, or rather, it would look unusual, if an American ship did not visit after this. So March 85 became the deadline for finding a ship that conformed to New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy. The key to getting the right ship was the American Commander-in-Chief in Honolulu. And in mid-November, Longy sent the Chief of Defence Staff, Ewan Jamison, to talk to Admiral Crow. They were personal friends, and Jamison stayed at his house. The Admiral offered him a choice of three conventionally powered ships, from which Jamison chose an elderly destroyer, USS Buchanan, because it was not operationally equipped for nuclear weapons and would be making a special voyage from Japan for the purpose. The Admiral was punctilious about giving no hint of its armament, but he was as aware as New Zealanders of the significance of the visit and the need for the ship to be clean. And in fact, a more modern American destroyer would be transiting through the Tasman at this time and could have made the visit, but clearly by arranging for a special visit coming all the way down from Japan just to visit Auckland and going all the way back, uh, the point should have been made fairly clearly. When Jamison came back, David Longy seemed comfortable with all this, though he did once reflect in the midst of a meeting with his advisers, take what you want, said God, and pay for it. As always with David Longy, no one knew quite what this Delphic statement meant. <laughs> but as the year came to an end, the spirits of his advisers rose. The Prime Minister told the American ambassador in December, just before Christmas, to submit the request for a visit by Buchanan for Cabinet to consider early in the new year, and said that he saw no difficulty. The Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Merv Norrish, was optimistic enough to tell Bill Rowling, who was about to leave as the new ambassador to Washington, he told Bill Rowling that whatever else happened in his term as ambassador, he wouldn't have to worry about ship visits. This proved to be a substantial underestimate. Word of an impending visit, though not the name of the ship, had leaked out of Washington after a visit there by Helen Clark, who telephoned her fellow activists to say, push the button. Across the country, the machinery of protest was set in motion. The telephone trees, networks, the haunting of newsrooms and demonstrations that distinguished the left when energised by a hot issue. A brilliant public relations campaign caught the government unprepared. Most of them were still at the beach. It was impossible to fight back because no one knew what was happening. There had been no cabinet consideration about the Buchanan visit, and no minister knew anything about it. 
it had all been held closely by David Longy. When he was offered a draft cabinet paper to brief his colleagues, he declined, saying he preferred to do it his way. His way turned out to be not to say anything at all, even to his deputy, Geoffrey Palmer. And amid the rising public storm, the Prime Minister chose to go off on a visit to the Tokelau Atolls. The Navy offered to take him in a frigate, which would have been more comfortable and would have had secure communications. But instead, characteristically, he preferred the informality of a rusty island trader. So, sailing from island to island, he was out of communication for eight days. Only a short warning from Palmer, tapped out letter by letter through our pier, got through to him. Back home here in Wellington, Palmer, immersed in briefings and being lobbied by anti-nucleists, had to decide what to do. Longy later, and rather unkindly, described Palmer's efforts as, quote, headless chookery, unquote. Palmer's first instinct was to confirm that a visit was in prospect and would be considered in accordance with our established procedures. In these neutral words, the left centred an impending betrayal. The pressure was stepped up by backbench members and by the Labour Party Executive Council, which insisted on its first meeting of the year on the absolute purity of its nuclear policy, saying, and I quote, there is no need to accommodate the American point of view. As Margaret Wilson, the party president at the time, later said, and I quote again, we did not think about the foreign policy implications. That was not our world. In the end, after a week or so, the harried Palmer stuck with the party manifesto, deciding as a lawyer that the absence of nuclear weapons on Buchanan could not be proved beyond reasonable doubt. His colleague, Richard Preble, complained that he had treated the problem as if it were one merely of statutory interpretation rather than one of relations with the United States. It was certainly the first time a criminal standard of proof had been applied to a ship visit. There was no cabinet discussion of his decision. Although a large bundle of briefing papers had been prepared for Cabinet, they were never circulated to ministers. Mike Moore and other colleagues thought later that they had failed in their duty of collective responsibility by not insisting that Cabinet should have discussed the biggest foreign policy issue to face the country in decades. They knew nothing of the issue and felt sorry for Palmer's predicament. All the same, they were careful in Preble's recollection never to let on what a shambles the decision-making had been. When Longy, flown home by the Air Force from Pangapango, entered the Cabinet room, he realised that the issue had been settled. He said to me that evening, You've no idea how difficult it was in Cabinet, Gerald. I was in a minority of one. At the time, I was surprised that a popular Prime Minister could ever be in a minority of one. I was later even more surprised to learn that there'd been no discussion at all in Cabinet. I finally came to the view that this was Longy speak 
for the fact that the Buchanan plan had disintegrated during his week away and there was nothing he could do about it. There was a final strange twist. David Longy walked away from the crash, claiming that he had not been at the wheel. He intimated to his colleagues that, like them, he had known nothing about the Buchanan until the day he returned from Pangapanga. He told Preble that, quote, he believed his officials, namely Hensley and Jamison, had been jacking up the visit without his knowledge or approval. This claim was never made in public or in the hearing of his advisers, but it was accepted by his colleagues since Palmer, his deputy, was clearly unaware of the request. Bill Rowling, the former Prime Minister, who is now Ambassador in Washington, had, however, no illusions about the muddle. He told the Australian Consul General in Honolulu a few months later that it was no wonder the Americans felt they had been misled. He said there had been an agreement on the Buchanan visit, clearly understood by both sides, but New Zealand had not lived up to it. Quote, when it had come to the crunch, Longy had been unable to deliver, unquote. That's the advantage of reading the Australian files when you're doing the book. David Longy's claim that he had not known of the ship visit was instinctive, if untruthful. Losing a battle may be less painful if you claim you never fought it in the first place. He continued to insist on the importance of ANZUS and the Western Alliance to New Zealand, but events were moving him to the more congenial role of the world's nukebuster. His triumph a few weeks later at the Oxford Union debate settled any remaining hesitations. Both Ross Vintner, his chief press secretary, and Geoffrey Palmer believe that it was not till the Oxford Union debate that David Longley became fully committed to the anti-nuclear cause. And that committed him because he was a gifted orator and he realised that henceforth his role, and indeed that of his country, could be as a beacon of hope in a nuclear-mad world. As a result of the Buchanan fiasco, the Americans lost all trust in New Zealand. They felt they had been deliberately deceived and humiliated. They had allowed New Zealand to invite the ship to visit and to choose the actual ship that would visit, uh, only to find that it had been rejected publicly. Your Prime Minister lied to me, said George Schultz. Since this was a security dispute, they decided to cut back not on trade, but on many of the ANZUS security and intelligence ties. In New Zealand, these cutbacks aroused nationalist indignation. Knowing nothing of the Buchanan negotiations, many saw the American measures as an attempt to bully and heavy a thoroughly worthy small country merely for standing up for its principles. There was hot-headed speculation on TV about American efforts to destabilise us or our currency, and what had been a diplomatic problem became a national quarrel. New Zealanders felt they were being pushed around. Though negotiations with America 
and Britain went on fitfully for months. There was never any real chance of a settlement after the Buchanan affair. The effort continued to be made, partly because diplomats hate to give up, but mainly because the Prime Minister could not be seen to abandon the ANZUS alliance. He was, he said, a prisoner of his anti-nuclear deal with the left, but he had to continue to assert New Zealand's ANZUS membership was unaffected because the polls showed that the public was still attached to the alliance. Polls consistently showed that about three quarters of those polled wished New Zealand to be nuclear free and three quarters, presumably many than the same people, wished New Zealand to be uh, a member of the ANZUS alliance. So in September 1985, Geoffrey Palmer went to Washington for what was billed as a major effort to bridge the differences. As the man who had rejected Buchanan, he was more acceptable to the peace movement, and this time he came with a position fully discussed and approved by both Cabinet and the Party Caucus. His mission, however, was not a success. His approach in Washington was not a diplomatic worded offer of a deal, but a sustained rebuke to the Americans for not settling on New Zealand's terms. If the impasse was to be broken, he said, the Americans would have to show more flexibility and he was there to discover if it existed. The Americans after this concluded they could not deal with this baffling and moody nation. Uh, Schultz complained to his British counterpart, the British Foreign Secretary, that the New Zealanders tended to say one thing in private and another in public. He wondered if perhaps the British could manage better. He told Sir Geoffrey Howe, the Kiwis pay close attention to your views. London was not keen on stepping into the dispute, feeling rightly that there was a danger of being bitten by both sides. But by then it felt obliged to try. And for several months, the Foreign Office lawyers filled waste paper baskets with successive drafts in the search for a formula acceptable to both sides. Nothing worked, and in the end, even they gave up. By then, George Shultz had concluded that he was being strung along to suit David Longy's domestic political needs. The two met for the last time in Manila in June 1986. The meeting was amicable, but as inconclusive as ever. In the course of it, to the surprise of the New Zealanders and indeed of his own team, Schultz decided to end it all. He emerged from the meeting to say, we part as friends, but we part company. It was over. After 25 years, opinion in New Zealand is still divided over the issue. It is agreed that it marked a revolution and our outlook on the world. If you looked at it from one point of view, it was the greatest mistake the country has ever made in its foreign policy. When you pursue a single issue at all costs, everything else 
becomes part of the costs. We threw away access and influence with the world's most powerful nation that other and much larger countries could only dream of securing. And we settled instead for a greater dependence on Australia. As a beacon in the world, we had little influence. No other country, whatever its views on nuclear weapons, was impetuous enough to lock out the American Navy. The main result achieved by the anti-nuclear campaign was that the country managed to exchange a seat at the top table for one on a bench in the corridor outside. But looked at from another standpoint, New Zealand was engaged in a battle to establish a new national identity to replace the old assurance that had gone with Britain's entry into the common market. The battle was fought over foreign policy and the quarrel with America was seen, as a professor of political science put it, as New Zealand's declaration of independence. The country was looking for a new national identity, clean, green and non-nuclear, and in taking on the United States it had stood up and spoken for itself. So the ANZUS dispute became part of the national myth. New Zealand as a country determined to seek its own way and it became part of the new national identity. There was one irony though. New Zealand found over those 25 years that it could not operate without a comfortable relationship with America. And it spent the last two decades working hard to get back to somewhere close to where it started in 1984 which you might argue shows the magnitude of the mistake. But there is a difference. The anti-nuclear policy has become a distinctive New Zealand flag, marking out the country as clearly as harkers and gumboots. Like that significant number who prefer a partnership to the bonds of matrimony, New Zealanders have come to prefer a close but informal partnership to the formality of an alliance. Thank you very much.